This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Hey, movie addicts, welcome to Cinema Fix, your start for the purest, highest quality movie reviews on the block. I'm Andrew Johnson, and I'm joined today by my fellow dealer, Monica Castillo. Hello, Andrew. How are you doing, Monica? Pretty good. I feel safe with this bow and arrow on my side. Well, I'm glad you know how to use that thing, because I'm a terrible shot. That's a bad thing (laughs) in the Hunger Games. (laughs) Yeah, I might just have to uh, use my bare hands. That's going to be messy. Good luck with that. (laughs) Oh, this is part two of episode number 74 of Cinema Fix, focused on the movie The Hunger Games, Catching Fire. So if you're looking for part one, uh, you're listening to The Wrong File. Go away. Uh, As always, you can subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher and email us at cinemafix at filmgeekradio.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail at 336-793-2509. We would love to hear from you. If this is your first time listening to Cinema Fix... Basically, this is the program on Film Geek Radio devoted to discussion of mainstream blockbuster films, and each week we release an episode in two parts. The first part is a general spoiler-free discussion, and the second part, which you're listening to right now, is the more in-depth analysis of the film, complete with spoilers, and it's designed to be listened to after you've heard part one, or at least after you've seen the film. Again, this is part two, so if you don't want to be spoiled, stop listening now and go check out part one of this episode. Uh, This week we're talking about the Hunger Games catching fire. Here's a clip. You two have a very simple task. I never meant for anyone to get killed. He has to know that. What are you talking about? Who has to know what? Snow. He came to see me. He's worried about rebellion in the districts. He thinks that they don't believe our love story. You know, Candace, you should have told me that before I went out there and tried to give these people their money. I'm sorry. I didn't know what to do. Candace, what were you thinking? Please, please, just help me get through this trip. Please, just help us get through this. This trip, girl, wake up. This trip doesn't end when you get back home. You never get off this train. You two are mentors now. From now on, your job is to be a distraction so people forget what the real problems are. All right, Monica, where would you like to start in this spoiler-filled discussion of The Hunger Games Catching Fire? Let's talk about our leading lady, Katniss. Okay, I I do have to say, first off, Jennifer Lawrence, I love her. I I thought she was good in the first film. In this one, she is great. Great. (laughs) She she manages to sell the weight of a lot Mm. of of this material that the rest of the movie doesn't quite nail. She manages to sell it. Oh, just just the looks on her face <laughs> as, as things are happening. I buy it. I believe, oh man, her soul is at stake here. Yeah, her body language when certain things happen, like, she she puts it all out there. Right, like, the, the moment when um she realizes that she's going to have to go back to the Hunger Games for a second time, mm-hmm. just the look on her face, I was like, yes, that is the look that is the emotion that I need to be feeling throughout this entire film. Yeah, Or when Senna's getting killed, or when she has that PTSD moment. Right. Which was which was a weird moment, because I felt like they never really went back to that. In the book, or? I can't remember how much that plays a role in the, in the book, but 
uh, in the film, there's at the beginning, she has that hallucination, mm-hmm. that flashback of when she shot that guy with an arrow. And she that's pretty much the only time she hallucinates, I believe. Yeah, it is. But she has bad dreams at one point when they're in training or so, and PETA comes to like make her feel better. Oh, right, right, yeah. That, yeah. That, that's true. But yeah, what are your thoughts on Katniss as a character? I think she is a great literary character in terms of just young adult stories. I'm just impressed by the characteristics that were given to her. She's more cold. She doesn't know how to make friends. These are not the typical attributes that you would give to a female character. So, and of course, she's good at hunting and she's, you know, good at surviving. So she doesn't need help. In fact, she helps PETA. So this one, I know this was happening before in the first film, but now it's getting a little bit more apparent where the guys are being separated into Team Gale or Team PETA. And I'm kind (laughs) of over that nonsense because I don't want her to be defined by her relationship, obviously. She's such a strong, interesting character on her own. Just dealing to try and get back to her family is enough of an ordeal rather than have to choose between two guys. Well, right. And that's, it's interesting to me. And, and again, that's another thing that I don't really like about how the Hunger Games has become such a huge phenomenon, or at least such a, such a really big budget mass marketed film. Because in the books, yeah, the relationship stuff is there, mm-hmm. but it's not really a big thing, and it's not the primary focus. But when it really caught on, and all of these teen girls started reading it, suddenly, again, you had like the Twilight phenomenon of which team are you on? Who should she wind up with? And honestly, the source material really isn't about that. It's about how she really doesn't have time for all of that romance <laughs> stuff, yeah. and she's dealing with all of these other things. So it's part of its its corporate takeover, basically, is that it's maybe right. played that up a bit. Cutting back to the lonely boyfriend back home, playing up that sadness, longing. Well, right. And the one thing I, I thought was interesting about this film is that in the first half, especially, she's spending a lot of time with Gail. And the movie does imply that they have kind of this romantic relationship. Mm-hmm. He kisses her. Right, he kisses her and she doesn't seem to mind. Yeah. You know, and and in the books, it's much more, it's much clearer that she doesn't quite view him that way. Mm. She's, she's just kind of like, he's, he's in the friend zone. Yeah. And a lot of it, the books are about, okay, Gail's in the friend zone, Peta's in the friend zone. Are they ever really going to come out of the friend zone or is, is love just not even possible during this time of crisis and the movie i think kind of plays up the romance aspect of it a little yeah. bit more than it, the it kind of feels like that but uh getting back to what you're you're talking about in terms of katniss being a good role model and a like a feminist icon i do think that she's a great character i think this film in particular didn't do her a lot of favors just in terms of how she was characterized because she just spends most of the time, at least in the while in the second half of the film, during the Hunger Games, I feel like she's mainly just reacting to stuff. Yeah. 
you know, like, oh, it's gas, run. Oh, it's monkeys, run. Yeah. You don't really get a sense of her figuring things out, her processing everything. There's no Rue tragedy there. Right. There's nothing like like the stuff with Rue. There's, I mean, there's some interesting things in terms of the alliances that are forming. It, it almost reminded me, I was thinking about our discussion on Ender's Game and how the book mm-hmm. is so much inside Ender's head. And it's hard to translate that to the screen. I think the same is true with with a series like The Hunger Games. Uh, the books are written in first person, and it's very much about it's very much inside Katniss's head and what she's feeling and what she's going through. And the movies, th- mm-hmm. this movie in particular, doesn't quite manage to communicate that. So a lot of the time, it does just feel like she's running around reacting to things rather than being proactive about mm-hmm. surviving. I mean, do you disagree with that or Yeah, I wonder though if it's more the structure of how the game is in this movie as opposed to the last one because in the last one she didn't really have any other alliances other than Rue. She was kind of just trying to survive and it's very much just like her against the world for that. Right. Moment. And the first film didn't do a great job of getting inside her head either, but it did at least yeah. hint that she was intelligent and she was capable of strategy like she could figure out oh i can drop this hive of poisonous insects on people but that was also part of the issue with the way that this game was set up is that like an entire section of the field or whatever would be covered in whatever random plague struck it so it's not like she could plan ahead up until that tree that was struck by lightning whatever how many times Right. So, so yeah, I, I, I think that Jennifer Lawrence does an incredible job, and I think it's a great character. I just wish that the movies did a little bit better job getting inside her head. Mm-hmm. It might be more interesting, God forbid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I want to talk about the first half of this film. I will say, well, the first mm-hmm. half of the film, it nothing really blew me away about it. Um, I did think it did a pretty good job of communicating just that those those messy issues of what's real and what's not real. What 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 mm-hmm. am I actually feeling versus what am I just pretending to feel for the cameras? Yeah. There's a moment when she has to record a little TV segment with Peta and they're walking together and then they like trip and fall and mm-hmm. she winds up on top of him. And it's this little moment that's played for laughs. And you're not really sure, was that planned? Was that spontaneous? Whose idea was it to do that? Mm-hmm. You know, are there real feelings sprouting here? Or is it just, uh, it, it, is it all fake? I did think that there were a few nice moments like that where it really just kind of makes you wonder what's really going on here. Yeah, I definitely did appreciate that. And just how the government was also kind of involved with the media strategy of their Hunger Games quote-unquote campaign. Like, it's so much more hand-in-hand that we have it now because obviously we can have dissenting opinions and where it doesn't seem like anyone has a problem with the Hunger Games, at least media-wise. So that parallel is, is also much more played up, I think, in this one. Or at least it made sense to me as opposed to the first movie. It's very much President Snow giving out directives to hey, we gotta make this game, we have to do this, make sure that she's portrayed in this way, take her down through image. 
Right, and that was interesting to me, the fact that you've got Philip Seymour Hoffman now as the game maker who's really trying to approach this. He's playing the long game. Yeah. Like, okay, I know you just want to kill her, but that might not do what you think it's going to do. That might just turn her into a martyr, Mm -hmm. and we need to do something else. We need to show viewers that she's not this perfect heroic figure, Yeah, this revolutionary figure that, that people think she is that she can turn against uh, her friends as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I did think that that was interesting. And the movie does do an okay job of depicting that conflict, whether it's, you know, her talking with PETA about, should we ally ourselves with these people? Should we break away on our own? Mm -hmm. There's that moment at the end where she has to make the decision whether or not to shoot uh, Finnick. So there were were a few moments like that that I thought, well, okay, at least they're, they're trying to touch on some of these ideas. Mm-hmm. And I, when it comes to the media stuff, Stanley Tucci, I love the guy. He has so much fun with that role, man. He, he just <laughs> chews the scenery. He is having... Oh, he's so much fun to watch. That's definitely a yes. highlight. And, and that's the thing about this movie, is that even though there were times when I wasn't tremendously invested in what was happening, mm-hmm. the performances I always thought were interesting. And we're, we're really solid most of the time. Uh, you've got Jenna Malone. I was going to say, in yeah. Particular. Like, she's not really a character. She's just a personality. But she's a fun personality. And every time she showed up on screen, I would just kind of perk up a little bit. Like, oh, it's Jenna Malone acting goofy and sarcastic. I like her. Yeah, full of attitude. <laughs> it, it, it made me wish that we had a little bit more time to sit and get to know some of these side characters. Mm. I mean, you've got Jeffrey Wright. Just re- He's reduced to just kind of sitting around mumbling about science stuff. Mm. And I was just thinking, oh, you've got Jeffrey Wright. Do you know what this man is capable of? Give him more to do. Yeah. Makes me wonder what's going to happen next. But unfortunately, I think the way that they ended this movie was awful. Well, to be fair, it's better than the way they ended the first film. It is, but that's not much better. <laughs> well, right. And and that's the other thing. I These movies, they don't feel like self-contained films. Yeah. Like, I feel like... Catching Fire, it doesn't really have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Everything just kind of happens, and it functions. Then, you know, we cut to credits, and it's like, wait, that's the Mm. ending? You know, it it doesn't really follow a concrete arc or structure. Uh, I mean, the first film, oh god, I hated the ending of the first film. The last shot of the first film is President Snow walking up some stairs. Like, oh, he's going to go plan something next, yeah. something new. And it, it's just a terrible way it's to end It's a non-ending. Right, it's not an ending. And, and and this movie ends with Katniss just breaking the fourth wall, looking into the camera. Like, she's, she's making fierce. the decision. Smile. Yeah, she's making the decision, like, she's not going to take it anymore. And she's going to rescue she's gonna Peter. she's going to become this revolutionary. I mean, it's an okay, exciting, I guess it's a somewhat exciting moment to no, end on. No, it's, I don't know, it just... It's better than a guy walking up some stairs. I mean, it's a final shot, it's okay. It just kind of reminded me of the first, I think, is it like first part of Breaking Dawn or whatever for Twilight? Because it's right after she had that horrific birthing scene or whatever, and then it it, kind of, oh, it like right. pans upwards and you see like her dead face just looking at the camera. And then here you have... 
pan upwards, Jennifer Lawrence looking like supposed to be determined look. And it's actually one of the only times where I kind of think she didn't pull it off. It's like it's too flat because there's no meaning to it. She's like, she just got this terrible news and then she's just going to look up and kind of furrow her brow. Cut and scene and movie. Well, here's why it falls flat. It's because it doesn't feel like a moment arising organically from what's happening on screen. It feels like a very calculated way to end the film. It's It's the studio saying, okay, we need to end this on a note that will uh, get people back into the theaters for the next one. It'll it'll let them know something exciting is coming. And, and, and that just goes back to what I said in part one about how my main problem with these films, I mean, it's not that they're bad movies. They just feel like corporate assembly line products. They're just designed to appeal to the fans, get them to shell out cash mm-hmm. for their ticket, and then get them to come back for the next one. Well, yes, they did it. If people come back for the next one. <laughs> I guess. I mean, people yeah. came back for the second one, even though the first one ended with Donald Sutherland walking up some stairs. So Those some really climactic stairs, yo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, these movies, they don't. it doesn't feel like they end because they're not supposed to end. They're, they're just supposed to keep going, so you keep coming back. I guess at least Harry Potter made sense because it's, it's the... It was the end of the school year, and then, like, whatever the end of their adventure was. Exactly. Each Harry Potter film, it was like, this is the end of this adventure. Mm-hmm. There might be few, There might be more adventures in the future. The fight with Voldemort isn't quite finished yet, but this is the end of this adventure. And the Hunger Games catching fire, yeah, they've wrapped up what happened in the arena, mm-hmm. but it still doesn't quite feel like the end of a standalone adventure. Yeah, no, it, it certainly doesn't. I took two. It, huge issue with that. <laughs> right. It doesn't feel like the characters have really reached any new place, even though I know we're supposed to believe that now Katniss has finally decided to be a revolutionary instead of kind of shy away from that. It feels very much like a film transitioning the characters from one place to the next. Yeah. Um, it just, it, it, it's a very static movie, in my opinion. The movie ended, and I was just kind of like, wait, that's it? Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. It, it, it doesn't feel like anything was resolved. No, that's why you're supposed to come back next time. <laughs> I guess so. Tune in for next year's episode. <laughs> in a part one, you brought up how Francis Lawrence directs the action. Mm-hmm. I did like that in this film. Because you can see stuff. <laughs> you can see things happening. Yeah, you can see what's happening. The camera isn't always cutting. Uh, the camera gl- uh, glides around the action a lot of the time. Shots mm-hmm. last for more than a split second. Um, yeah. So I, I, I did think that the action was pretty well done. I'm going to start calling it like the seizure editing. Where you just have, like, flashes <laughs> to induce a seizure. So that's why <laughs> those terrible action sequences where it's just like, cut, 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 cut. You don't even know what you're looking at. Right. <laughs> that's going to be that. Yeah, I definitely did not like that at all in the first one. I, it just feels so much more calmer. Like, it's someone knows what he's doing with the camera. Right. Instead of, like, again, you have the shaky cam and you have the terrible editing. And I just, I could barely keep my eyes on it. Even though this, I like the story. I do like the story. I just did not like how it was done last time. You know what I think would be really interesting? What? 
I think it would be really interesting if Francis Lawrence almost makes up for the bad action direction of the first film mm-hmm. by having the third film be even calmer in terms of the in terms of the camera smoother have shots last even longer slow motion <laughs> challenge uh, may, maybe so <laughs> and in that way it would almost redeem the first film because you could view it as an extension of Katniss's maturity <laughs> yeah her maturity like in the first film she didn't know what was going on she was freaked out it was all crazy the second film she's done it before so she's a little bit more confident and a little bit more secure and then the third film you know when she's this full-blown revolutionary uh yeah maybe maybe even take that to its even further you're welcome film school undergrads this is your future thesis (laughs) francis lawrence if you're still working on the third film just just an idea just something to consider slow it down make it mean something because yeah we mentioned in part one about how so in some ways it it still feels safe like the music is always present Mm -hmm. i do think it would be cool if especially during the scenes where there's not a whole lot of action, mm-hmm. they're really, if, if, if maybe there doesn't have to be music. Just be like they're breathing. Just have some silence. Just have long static shots of characters talking, feeling, processing what's going on. All right, on. don't change it into mumblecore. <laughs> no, 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 no not, in, not into mumblecore. I, I mean, <laughs> Hunger Games mumblecore. <laughs> Catching mumblecore. We don't need the Hunger Games to turn into Steve McQueen's hunger. <laughs> With a 10-minute static shot mm. in the middle, even though that would be awesome. You know, you know, no need to go that far. But take just, uh, you know, allow the audience time to really just kind of sit and, and reflect on what's happening. I deaths. think that that would be yeah. nice. All the death. It's yes. To process that. I brought up Ender's Game earlier. That was another film adaptation that I felt like didn't fully capture the weight of what was at stake here and everything that was happening. And I don't know if it was just the PG-13 rating or the fact that they couldn't get inside Ender's head or what. And I I feel like The Hunger Games is very similar. I mean, there are potentially thousands and thousands of lives at stake. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, at the very least, you've got everyone being killed in The Hunger Games. uh, And at most, you have the thousands of people that will die if there's a revolution. Well, and apparently District 12 is no more. So that's a big deal. Right, right. District 12 just got wiped off the map, apparently. And there was n- there was really no time to sit with that information. It was just, oh, by the way, District we 12's no gone. Home. We have no home. Cut to Jennifer Lawrence looking fierce <laughs> in the movie. And <laughs> movie. I, I think the movie would benefit if they took the approach of, instead of just trying to cram in all the events of the source material... Let's let's just think about trying to translate the mood of the source material yeah. and the ideas and the weight of it. That's what I think the, the, this franchise really needs. Mm-hmm. They need to be willing to take those risks. Trust your audience. I, th- I mean, people are going to go see these movies no matter what. Yeah. They're going to make tons of money. So I don't understand why, why they aren't taking greater risks with some of this stuff. Yeah, it's definitely a good point. You know, by the third film, you're kind of guaranteed... Especially with the, I think the box office receipts they've been getting now is that the this one is already surpassing the first film. Right, and it it just goes back to that old irony of filmmaking, which is that sometimes if you have a low budget, mm-hmm. you're more free to take risks and play around and go a little bit darker yeah. and 
uh, not be as nearly as safe, but somehow when you have more money and you supposedly have the freedom to do more stuff and maybe there's a guaranteed audience already there, you can't do that. It, it's, it's very strange. Yeah, I remember as a Harry Potter fan when um, they started taking a few creative liberties with how events in the book happened and I was very displeased. <laughs> It, well, see, the thing is, I, that's hard. Well, I'm I don't know like because a, that, I mean, that was like my childhood books. So then to see them messed so. up, it just it it touched me. I mean, I kind of feel like again, with with any adaptation, a movie's different from a book. The movie doesn't have to be the book. I would much rather see a movie differ mm. in terms of what it shows and the events that are on screen but still manage to capture the mood or the spirit of the book than to just translate it scene for scene. Well, this might be the whole question of fandom, because we get that a lot with comic book adaptations, we get that in book adaptations as well. I Obviously, this many times I've seen Romeo and Juliet, I welcome a new adaptation of Romeo and Juliet, but maybe it's because it's the first time we're seeing, like, say, the Harry Potter series on scene. On, on the big screen, and then the death of Sirius Black, which is a really big turning point in the books, doesn't get played out the way that J.K. wrote it. And that, that one was the big one for me. Like, I that made me cry. <laughs> mm-hmm. well, well, see, that's the thing, Monica, is that I feel like, may, may, I don't know, maybe the producers of The Hunger Games took Harry Potter as a lesson, and I'm not sure that was a good lesson to take because... Fans, obviously, if, if there's a passionate fan base, they just want to see what happened mm-hmm. in the books play out on screen, which is kind of weird to me because it's like, well, you've already imagined this in your head. Do you really just need to see? How about if it's not like the major pivotal points, like say like the, that big moment at the end of book five, but rather right. like little things in between, like at the end of Breaking Dawn part two, when that director he had uh bill condon right yeah he had the dream sequence that was perfect for people who right. were not fans of the book <laughs> at all where they kick people's head off like soccer balls and the, it horrified the fans but then we cut back to the book the book material and then it proceeded fine and whatever and everyone was okay but for like just right. that five or seven minute sequence it was new it was different it was not in the script, or it was not in the book. Well, see, here's the thing. If, if all you're thinking about is, like, the diehard fans, you're never going to completely please them. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they're always going to be able to find something that didn't quite match the book. And I don't think movies have to match the book. I don't say they have to, but I wonder if, like, the first adaptation... I just think, you know, in the process of translating something from the page to the screen, it, it's just an entirely different medium. And as yeah. sort, as such, you may have to Change approach things differently in order to make it a better film. Okay. And that's that's why I kind of think the Hunger Games movies feel so, so bland. Mm-hmm. I mean, even though they're better overall than the Twilight films, which which just made me cringe. <laughs> you know, the Hunger Games movies, they don't make me cringe. I'm not, like, dreading going to see them. But they do feel similarly safe and bland and that it's just like, oh, well, here's what happened in the book on screen. Yeah. That's it. Not, no, no, there's no real risk. There's no real... Uh, they, they don't capture... You know, it, it, it's not the events that make the book 
interesting. Mm-hmm. It's the emotions and the ideas and the feelings that those events provoke in the mm-hmm. reader through the author's description of them. You know, when you're translating that to film, the director needs to find a way to evoke those same feelings. Mm-hmm. And maybe the way to do that isn't just by presenting the same events beat for beat. So maybe that's why I say I saw, I'm going to keep going back to the fifth movie because that's where I really got upset with the Harry Potter series uh, movies. Mm-hmm. They changed the way that Sirius Black died. So therefore it took away the hope that Harry had that Sirius was still alive. So, right. Cause it was like a double edged sword in the book because you're not sure if he's dead or not, but he basically has to be told actually, yes, he's dead. And in this one, it's a, in the movies, it was a clear death curse that killed him. There's no ambiguity, so they change the emotion of that scene. Well, right, and, and that's the thing. I mean, obviously, adapting to anything is difficult, and you have to decide, okay, what emotions do I want to go for? Do I want to go for the same emotion as the book? Mm-hmm. Do I want to go for a different emotion? Do I want to do the same thing, or do I want to play with it? You know, what what's my mm-hmm. ultimate goal here? And unfortunately, I feel like with the Hunger Games there wasn't really an interesting creative or artistic goal behind this movie. It was just, well, what do fans want to see? What was in the book? What do they want to see? Let's just show that and, and get that out there, and that's really all we need to do. So, yeah, that, that's my main problem with, with, the, with the film. It's, I mean, it's, again, these movies aren't bad. They just, they're, mm-hmm. they're average. They're safe. They're standard big studio blockbusters, which is a shame considering the source material is dealing with so many heavy, risky, and in some yeah. ways subversive Well, it's, it's certainly ideas. been co-opted by some of the corporate entities that go into making a film in the first place. So, irony. I mean, I, 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 mean, I remember reading the books and just kind of thinking, wow, middle schoolers are reading this. You know, mm-hmm. k- kind of like Ender's Game. Like, wow, I can't believe kids are reading this. This is so cool that kids are being introduced to these heavy themes, mm-hmm. and it feels dangerous. Yeah, speaking about exploitation of the masses is not exactly what <laughs> lands a book on the not-banned list. Right, it feels dangerous. Like, oh, maybe kids shouldn't be reading about this stuff, but, but that makes it exciting. And the movies don't have mm-hmm. that sense of danger like oh i can't, I can't yeah. believe they're doing this i do want to give a quick shout out to just the production design and the costume design because i think in terms of just providing mm-hmm. that setting so again i haven't read the story so i know nothing about who is who and what is what so just to be able to make it seem like they are being we are being transported to something we haven't seen before i think it's very engaging Right, I, I do think the production design is great, and I brought that up in my, my review for Movie Mezzanine. It's kind of ironic that, you know, the Hunger Games, the books at least, they're very much about how appearances can matter more mm-hmm. than reality and the real tr- and real truth. And in some ways, I feel that these movies, you mm-hmm. know, they look great, but mm-hmm. they're really not all that great. If you stop to think about it, like they look fantastic, but they're missing the weight and the subtext and, and, and the emotions behind the appearance. That seems strange to me, that a book series about how appearances 
in this dystopian society or everything has been made into a movie in which, in my opinion, it seems like appearance is everything. Is that being too harsh? No, it's also, I mean, it's also part of just the industry. Right. In itself. Right. Where appearance sells. If you don't look like, you know, a blockbuster kind of movie, you're not going to get the blockbuster kind of crowds. Right. You know, the days of the small little, you know, the 60s and the 70s where you can have the small little movie make hundreds of millions of dollars doesn't really exist anymore. Right. And, and see, again, though, I feel like The Hunger Games, it's become a literary phenomenon. There's already a fan base here. People are going to go see the movie no matter what. I, th- I kind of think it'd be cool if Lionsgate, or I think it's Lionsgate that produced it, or they're at least distributing it. I think mm-hmm. it would have been interesting if the studio had been like, well, in order to keep with the themes of the book... We're not going to give you a massive budget. We know that this this is going to be a big blockbuster. But you know what? Here's $10 million. Go do something crazy and risky and mm-hmm. gritty with it. You know, I, I think that would have uh, been an approach that would coincide with the themes of the books themselves and, and what, what the movies are supposed to actually be about. And also, the fans are going to go see it no matter what. Uh... You don't think so? Not if it doesn't get Elizabeth Banks her awesome dress. <laughs> I guess, but I mean... I mean, you couldn't create the world of Pan Am and the big old capital and the train and the different districts here and there with a the $10 million budget. I guess. Maybe not $10 million, but like 30 or $40 million. Maybe it was the bad director we had on the first one, but still, it looks so much smaller. You could tell when you went past of the set... And then it became CGI forest. But again, that did not keep people away. It didn't, but that was eighty million, and we still can see the stitching. You know, one hundred and thirty million, and we we can, you know, it's it feels a little bit more satiny. <laughs> but see, I don't I don't mind it if you can see the stitching though, because I feel like you can see the stitching no matter what. I, I mean, the the CGI effects in Catching Fire are better than the CGI effects in the first film, but there's still CGI effects, and I can point them out a mile away going, oh, yeah, that looks fake, that looks fake. Mm. Nothing about the effects in this movie at least really blew me away. So I kind of feel like if you just accept that that's going to be the case and kind of be willing to run with it. I don't know how, how popular the Roger Corman School of Filmmaking would be among kids these days. Be interesting to find out. Roger Corman's Hunger Games. Now that would be You're welcome. Interesting. Someone get working on that. Make that happen. Make like one extra die 12 times. <laughs> Give Darren Aronofsky the Hunger Games. You know, he knows how to work with a budget. Oh, you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, is there anything else you would like to say about the Hunger Games catching fire? No, I think I think we survived the Hunger Games. <laughs> Spoiler, Katniss did not catch on fire in this movie. Yeah, she did. At the beginning, when she spins and her dress catches on fire, and when, like, she's out in the parade and their clothes go on fire again. Well, yeah, but her dress did that in the first film. But it burned this time. <laughs> That's, true. That's true. She burned a wedding dress. How, how much more feminist can you get? <laughs> <laughs> Except that whole weird baby thing. Was that in the book? I assume maybe. What baby thing? The baby where PETA says that actually Katniss is pregnant or so to drum up support from the capitals. Yes, I believe that was in the book. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that was a nice moment. 
It was actually good because it's like, oh, manipulation of media right back at you. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that'll wrap it up for part two of our discussion of Catching Fire here on Cinema Fix. Don't forget to, to tune in next week when I'm pretty sure we're going to be discussing Old Boy, assuming I can find it playing in a theater near where I am at the moment. I, I, I'm out of town. The plan is we're going to be discussing that and we're going to have a special guest on as well. They're not even screening it for critics. Oh, well, that bodes well. Red flags. Red flags. <laughs> All right. Well, we'd love to get your feedback on the show. You can email us at cinemafix at filmgeekradio.com or comment on the website at filmgeekradio.com. You can also subscribe to the show through iTunes and Stitcher. So if you like this episode, please write us a review. That helps us get the word out about the program. Uh, you can also donate to us through the website. We really appreciate your help. And uh, Black Friday's coming up. So if you would really like to help us out, uh, go to our affiliates page on the website and navigate to Amazon through our website and do all your Black Friday shopping through Amazon. And they do pre-Black Friday sales and Cyber Monday sales. Right, right. And if you use uh, our website as the portal to get to Amazon, we will get a percentage of whatever you spend. So go buy yourself a big screen TV and use Film Geek Radio to get there. And uh, that, that will really help us out. <laughs> oh, and, and, and we really do appreciate it. Uh, don't forget to check out other great shows on Film Geek Radio, including The Thin Place, The Nerdy Projectors, uh, The Briefing Room, and The Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. cast. Monica, where can people find you online? People can find me on Twitter and Tumblr at mcastingmovies. That's M-C-A-S-T-I movies. They can also find my work reposted on the Boston Online Film Critics Association website at B-O-F-C-A. Com. I'm managing editor at moviemezzanine.com, so you can find uh, some of my film reviews there, including my review of The Hunger Games Catching Fire. Uh, you can also find some of my TV criticism at pathios.com, and you can follow me on Twitter at writerandrew. Be sure to send me a message and let me know you're a listener, and I will follow you back so we can continue discussing The Hunger Games and movies in general. That'll wrap it up for this episode. I'm Andrew Johnson. I'm Monica Castillo. And may the odds be ever in your favor. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!